This past week I received an invitation as I do every year to the annual uh, leadership summit that is hosted by Willow Creek and it will be broadcast via satellite to nearly 100,000 leaders all over the world. Uh, many of the speakers there are known, uh, well-known gifted leaders. Heibels himself, Jack Welch who is the former CEO of uh, General Electric, um, Tony Dungy who is a successful head coach of the uh, Indianapolis Colts are, are some of the speakers. You may not know them, but they're well known in, in Christian leadership circles. Many of these are visionary leaders. In fact, most of them are. And the goal of the summit is to inspire other leaders to begin to cast a vision in their congregations and their places of work. And usually these kinds of leaders call the people that they are leading to do things. And there's a lot that needs to be done for the kingdom of God. But there's another kind of visionary leadership. This is perhaps at least as important, if not more important, than managerial and executive leadership. And that is uh, uh, theological vision. You see, theological vision goes beyond what is visible, which is usually temporal and short-lived, to see that which is eternally significant and, and therefore long-lived. People with such vision are more often than not calling people not so much to do in the first instance as to be certain kinds of people so that the doing flows out of their being and becoming. So today I want to invite all, most of you won't go to the leadership summit that Willow Creek is hosting, but you've all come to one this morning even though you didn't know it. It's actually hosted by Isaiah. It's his leadership summit. And it's held in a very interesting place called the Valley of Vision. Now that's an oxymoron almost because... If we, had to, if we had to identify a geographical entity with vision, we wouldn't think of valleys. We would think of mountains, right? Because mountains are what are associated with vision. You can see far. So what does a valley of vision mean? It is a powerful metaphor in Isaiah to describe the condition of the people of Judah at that time. That they were basically a short people with a constrained vision, a limited vision. They only saw what was visible, what was short-lived, temporarily significant. And therefore we will find that they partied. In the midst of that was Isaiah, his vision not limited by the valleys, who saw theologically, who saw eternally significant things. And he wept. And so the 22nd chapter of Isaiah that we're going to look at today is this very strange and unusual combination of a weeping prophet in the midst of a partying people in the valley of vision. <laughs> Think about that. A weeping prophet in the midst of the partying people in the valley of vision. Its relevance for today is obvious. As individuals and as families and as churches, so often we are making decisions for ourselves and for our families based on what is visible reality only. Based on that which is short term and temporally significant. Without the theological vision that needs to inform that which is in the short term. And therefore it is crucial that in families and in churches we need people with theological vision. People who can see in the long term. People who therefore can sense when it is a time to weep and when it is a time to rejoice and call people to respond accordingly. That's why it is also a very appropriate Father's Day message as it turns out. Because what, we, what families desperately need are fathers with theological vision. Because we can be so easily and completely mired into the, in the elements of visible reality that we forget that we need to interpret them in the light of 
theological vision, in light of invisible reality. So fathers listen up, leaders listen up, everybody else listen up too, because those of you who live like this will become leaders. And the rest of you need to know what kind of leaders you should follow. We've been looking at the 11 chapters from 13 to 23 in Isaiah as a bulk. They have been the declarations of God's judgment upon the nations that surround Judah. We've seen Babylon judged for her pursuit of human glory apart from divine glory. We've seen Moab judged for her overweening pride that therefore refused even the offer of salvation. And we've seen Egypt judged for her human wisdom. But today, in chapter 22, it is God's people themselves who are going to be judged. And Isaiah begins with these words. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. The the housetops were places for community lament. Yet here they've been turned into places of party. The, The historical occasion for this was most likely 711 BC when King Sargon, who was one of the Assyrian kings, had laid siege to a Philistine city named Ashdod. That was so close to Jerusalem and Judah that the people got scared and they said, okay, we better shore up our defenses. And Isaiah describes that in verses 8 to 11. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters in the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Weapons, water and walls were the three things that they paid attention to in order to protect themselves maybe from this onslaught. And then for reasons that we do not know, Sargon disappeared. He withdrew from there. And so here were the people of God having shored up their defenses and seeing the threat go away. Well, that was the time for partying, right? And so they partied. But Isaiah saw the long-term vision. And Isaiah saw that this was only temporary relief. That there was coming a time when Assyria would no longer be the dominant power, Babylon would be, and Judah would be taken captive to Babylon. And so he wept. He describes it in these words. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and of confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stands at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. He saw long-term reality. They could only see what was in the short term. You see, their fundamental problem was not the planning, but there was no room for God in it. For we read this here. But you did not. You looked, to, you looked to your weapons, you looked to your water, you looked to your walls, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. The it here refers to the city of Jerusalem itself that they were defending. You see, when God chose Jerusalem as his dwelling place, he already knew that her water supply was very susceptible. It came from the Gihon Springs, which was external. And even though they had a conduit to conduct the water, it was all over land. And so their water supply was very vulnerable. God always arranged it in such a way that living in Jerusalem would be a perpetual challenge of faith, would be a continual call to trust God for their security. Of course, they've resorted to engineering. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that it became the focus of their trust to the exclusion of God. They trusted in their walls, they trusted in their water, they trusted in their weapons, and they did not look to God at all. And so Isaiah says, He says, in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
What's happening here? You see, when the Philistines came that close, that the, that the land was endangered, Judah had forgotten how to respond. You see, they were a covenant people. Therefore, the land was a covenant gift from God. And therefore, when the land was threatened, the responsibility of covenant people is to ask themselves, where have we violated the covenant? Because otherwise the land would not be in risk. That's what they were supposed to do when the land was attacked. Instead, they chose to rely on their own techniques and rejoiced when it seemed to succeed and they partied instead. They completely missed the theological significance of what was happening. That's what Isaiah was saying. That was the day when you should have repented. Instead you were partying. And therefore comes his sentence upon them. He said, The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my years. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. This was the unpardonable sin in the Old Testament. That's how solemn this issue was. Anyway, so that's, that's Israel. It's time for us to make our familiar trip from 800 BC to 2010 AD. What does this text say to you and me today? There are two very interesting bridges. One comes first of all from this whole issue of the unforgivable sin. Because in the New Testament we find that according to Jesus there is a sin that is, will never be forgiven. Uh, Sean has rightly reminded us at the very beginning that our God is a God who forgives us. Forgiveness is freely available. So what is this unforgivable sin? Over the years, on many occasions, I've had sensitive young Christians come to me anxious that they may have committed the unpardonable sin. And my response to them is always the same. I say, the very fact that you're anxious tells me you haven't. Because the people who are guilty of the unpardonable sin aren't even aware that it's a sin. Why do I say that? In Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel, we find Jesus making this pronouncement. That, that this particular sin against the Holy Ghost will never be forgiven. The context is the same in both cases. He has been delivering people, especially he has been casting out demons from people. And Jesus has been teaching that by this you know that the kingdom of God is upon you. Basically he says this certifies to you that I am who I say I am. This is your long awaited Messiah coming. This kingdom that you've been expecting has shown up. But the Pharisees didn't want to believe that. Repentance meant a change of mind, especially about who Jesus was. That's what he was calling them. Change your mind about the kingdom. Now the Pharisees were revolutionaries. At least they were fomenting revolution from behind the scenes. They were the theological arm, if you will, of the zealot movement. But how did they explain this miracle? And so they said, oh yeah, we know how to do that. Of course you're casting out the devils. That's because you're the chief of all the devils. You're casting out all these junior devils by the power of the senior devil. You know what they were doing? They were taking the work of the Holy Spirit and attributing it to the devil. Basically, it was their way of saying, this is how we deal with the conviction work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit convicts us about who Jesus is, we'll explain it away. That's why it is an unforgivable sin, because you see, it is a sin of refusing to repent. And repentance is the necessary precondition for forgiveness. Therefore, it is impossible to be forgiven of a sin if you choose to repent, if you do not repent of it. Specifically, this refusal to repent about your opinion on Jesus. So now we can understand how that works today. I don't know whether there's anybody in this church. There's large enough. I know there are in the world. And I know some individuals too, because I've had conversations with them. But in a group this large, there might be even one. And if there's even one, it's worthwhile me speaking to you. It is possible that you on various occasions, in various settings, have known the conviction of the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus really is. He's not just a great teacher. 
He is not just a founder of a nice religion. You have known the conviction of the Spirit that He is the Son of the living God. He is the Savior of the world. You are being called to repent, to change your mind about Jesus. It might be in a sermon. It might be in a conversation with a friend. It might be in a Bible study. It might be in a book. It might be in a quiet walk where you are going somewhere. It might be in a song that you hear. And what you do is to explain it away, just like the Pharisees. You say, ah, that's just that's a subjective feeling. Or, well, it's just a manipulative preaching. With all the songs set up and the testimony planned carefully just to jerk on our heartstrings, you know. Oh, you don't say those things, but that's what you think away. You talk about those hypocrites in the church. And you go away. And then you eat, drink and be merry. You, you drown out the voice of conviction by living life. Go to a movie. Have a nice meal. Spend a good evening with my boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or whatever. These are all the modern day equivalents of eat, drink and be merry. So this comes as a warning to modern day Epicureans. And by the way, that's the name given to the eat, drink and be merry philosophy. Although it wasn't really started at the time of the Greeks. We saw Isaiah talking about it. It's a warning to modern day Epicureans who will explain away every conviction about Jesus so they can continue to stay where they are. Listen, that's why we regularly preach about Jesus. That's why we have Alpha. That's why we have Fran series. That's why we are pleading with you to consider who Jesus is. Because you know what? To a greater or lesser degree, like Isaiah, we see beyond your visible reality. No matter how good or how nice your visible reality is at present. We see beyond that to the invisible realities where you are headed for eternal judgment. Where your souls are shriveling up. And on the basis of that invisible reality, we plead with you. Be reconciled to God the Father, through Jesus the Son. And if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning, you never know when you will cross that line of rejecting Jesus that final time. So please don't do it if you're here, even if there's one person here. That's one bridge from Isaiah to us today. The second bridge is for the rest of us. Those of us, most of us, the bulk of us here, who say, oh, I am a follower of Jesus. And you are. So what does this text have to say to us? That bridge comes actually from Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians. He writing to the Corinthians Christians, he says this, If the dead are not raised at all, why am I in danger every hour? I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It's a direct quotation from Isaiah 22. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning. So we need to understand the context. Uh, let me give you some background to 1 Corinthians. We studied that book a few years ago in detail. Corinth was in Greece, modern day Greece. Paul established the church during one of his preaching ministries there. And a few years later, he's received some letters from people there. And there's some troubles in that church. The central issue in Corinth was a group of teachers, false teachers who were basically teaching that the resurrection had already happened. Not Christ's resurrection. That the resurrection of believers had already happened because it was a spiritual resurrection. And they they considered themselves to be an elite group of people who were already experiencing the resurrection of believers. And this teaching and the mindset associated with it led to all kinds of problems and heresies in that church. 
And so Paul takes the first 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians to deal with those problems. And then suddenly in chapter 15, which is a long chapter on the resurrection, most modern day New Testament scholars say, oh see, it has nothing to do with the rest of the book. Actually, it has everything to do with the rest of the book. Here's Paul's argument. He says, listen, if we are not going to be physically raised from the dead one day and share in Jesus' resurrection, what is the point in me living the way I am right now? It is in that context that he quotes, let us eat, drink and be merry. It is intended as a contrast to his chosen way of life. And his present way of life he describes as fighting with wild beasts. He's not talking about being a gladiator, otherwise he wouldn't be alive. He's talking about the constant fights and the opposition that he faces in preaching the gospel. As he goes from place to place. He says, I die daily for the sake of the gospel. I die daily for the sake of you, the church. He said, why if I am not going to be raised from the dead in the future, why should I live like this? It's much better to eat, drink and be merry. For tomorrow we die. You see his argument? But he says, Christ is risen from the dead and you and I are going to rise, raised from the dead one day. We will be sharing in his glorious resurrection bodies and we will for the first time in our lives truly fulfill our eternal destinies to be sons and daughters of God ruling and subduing this new glorious creation where heaven and earth are married together. In other words, he says, you don't just have a past with Jesus, you have a future with Jesus. (laughs) And because... You are going to be those kinds of people. Live like that today. So it says, awake, wake up, stop sinning. Basically all these things in the first 14 chapters. And let me remind you of the, of the kinds of things that were going on. They were fighting with one another. Party spirits. Because they were following people with toastmaster skills. Greek, uh, Sophia, wisdom. They said, oh, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. This preacher is better. That one's not as good. I belong to this party. You belong to that. He said, that's nonsense. Stop it. Because you're all going to be one in Christ. one. And then the Christians were taking other Christians to the, to the law courts. There were people who were demeaning marriage. Saying, oh, you know, we, we've reached the super spiritual state. We don't need things like marriage anymore. On the other hand, there were people who were involved in ritual prostitution. Because what you did in the body didn't matter anyway. There were Christians who were um, not celebrating the Lord's Supper properly. The ones who were rich were gorging themselves while the poor didn't have anything to eat. They were misusing spiritual gifts. All these things, he said. And then in his famous love chapter. What was his point in all of them? These are not just things he was telling reluctant Christians, you should do this. He says, this is what you're going to do one day. Start doing it now. You know, it's, it's like a young kid who wants to be a base, first baseman for the New York Yankees. And he, he's possessed with a vivid imagination. And he says, I can see myself doing that one day. So I'm going to live like that. That's the kind of thing Paul is talking about. All the exhortations to be pure and to not sin. They're not commandments given to reluctant people. He says, know your destiny. This is what you're going to become one day. One day you are going to be a loving person. One day you are going to be kind and merciful and patient and long-suffering and gentle. And This is who you are going to be. So start being that now. Get the point? We have a future with Christ, not just a past with Christ. That's Paul's whole point in here. That's why he says live for the end, don't live for the weekend. Then he finishes by saying this. He said, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
the word translated company there can also be translated conversation. And it carries the idea of the kind of conversations that take place in the community that you hang around with. So basically Paul is saying to the Corinthians, which group of people are you going to hang around with? These super spiritual individuals who think they've all, that the resurrection has already happened? Then you're going to keep living this messy life that I see in Corinth. Or are you going to hang around with people who live like me, who die daily for the sake of the kingdom? Because one day we have a glorious resurrection waiting for us. Choose your company. Choose the conversation. It's going to help you live differently. Okay, so that gives us a second bridge. Now that you understand the context. It is in this context Paul says, don't eat, drink and be merry. Live this way. George Barna, well-known Christian researcher, has written a recent book, and the book is called The Seven Faith Tribes. It's, a, it's an analysis of, of the religious communities in America. Probably approximately applies to us, I'm sure. And he identified 66% of, North, of America is made up of what he called casual Christians. 16% are what he called captive Christians. 11% are skeptics. And the 7% remaining are Jews, Mormons, pantheists, and Muslims. What, what uh, grabbed my attention was the distinction he made between casual Christians and captive Christians. The quote is somewhat long, but it's very easy to understand. So I'm going to read it slowly. And you just ask yourself the question, hey, where, where, you know, what kind of things come close to home for me? You know, the, the little knock that Sean was talking about. This is how he describes casual Christians. He says, casual Christianity is faith in moderation. This particular tribe is comprised of significant proportions of minimally active born-again Christians and moderately active but theologically nominal Christians. It allows them to feel religious without having to prioritize their faith. It fulfills their inner need to have some type of connection with the deity and provides the image of being a decent, faith-friendly person. Christianity is a low-risk, predictable proposition for this tribe, providing a faith perspective that is not demanding. A casual Christian can be all things that they esteem, a nice human being, a family person, religious, an exemplary citizen, a reliable employee, and never have to publicly defend or represent difficult moral or social positions, or even lose much sleep over their private choices, as long as they mean well and generally do their best. Casual Christianity, because of its moral receptivity and pliability, generally eliminates spiritual backbone from moral discussions. To them, casual Christianity is the best of all worlds. It encourages them to be a better person than if they had been irreligious, yet it is not a faith into which they feel compelled to heavily invest themselves. Now, in contrast to this, he describes captive Christians. He says, the lives of captive Christians are defined by their faith. Their worldview is built around their core spiritual beliefs and resultant values. Casual Christians are defined by the desire to please God, family, and other people while extracting as much enjoyment and comfort from the world as possible. The big difference between these two tribes is how they define a successful life. For captives, success is obedience to God as demonstrated by consistently serving Christ and carrying out His commands and principles. For casuals, success is balancing everything just right so that they are able to maximize their opportunities and joys in life without undermining their perceived relationship with God and others. Stated differently, casuals are about moderation in all things, while captives are about extreme devotion to their God, regardless of worldly consequences. Sobering description, right? So Isaiah's call to repent not only comes to those 
who are not yet Christ followers and who are continually neutralizing the convicting voice of the Spirit by explaining it away and then by taking care of ongoing conviction by eating, drinking and being merry, it also comes as a call to the rest of us to do that work of ongoing repentance as to, to the extent to which our Christianity is very casual and convenient compared to the extent to which it has become truly captive of Christ. Remember last week in those five points about what true religion really is, the first one was an ongoing repentant lifestyle. I guess this is an amplification of that. It is a lifestyle. It's called to a lifestyle of repentance. What Sean testified to us about was a lifestyle of repentance. Friday wasn't enough. He had to do it again on Tuesday in a totally different context. And it'll happen maybe again. Uh, on, on the last year that I worked for Atomic Energy of Canada, before I came, it was 30 years ago now, if I remember so clearly, on, on a week's notice I had to go to Holland on a, on, to meet with the nuclear regulatory people. And so my division manager and I went together. Only time I got to fly business class, you know. Because <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> you don't get tickets in short term like that. However, he and I had a wonderful conversation. There was, there was an article about Hans Kung, a German for a theologian at that time. And he said, I, he said, I don't like all this breast beating that Christians do. I don't know whether Jesus is particularly interested in breast beating or not. In fact, I think there's good evidence in the scriptures that he's not particularly impressed with breast beating. In fact, he told us, if you're fasting, don't show anybody. Put on your best garments, put your makeup on, get the best expensive perfume on so nobody knows. He's not interested in breast beating. But there's no question what the Bible thinks about repentance. For example, in the Psalms, there are 15 Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Three times a year, everybody in Israel had to go to Jerusalem. Everybody within 20 miles had to go to Jerusalem. And the last part was the Ascent. They had to climb. So it was always going up to Jerusalem. No matter where they came from, eventually they had to go up to Jerusalem. And that's why, and, and so, and, but this journey was a difficult journey. It was difficult terrain. There were bandits all around, water shortages. And so they, these 15 songs called the Psalms of Ascent, they sang to themselves both to begin that journey and to sustain them on that journey until they got to Jerusalem. It's, those 15 Psalms, by the way, make a beautiful picture of the Christian life. And it's well worth studying. Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, is one of the best treatments of those 15 Psalms. I want to talk about the first Psalm, how it all gets started. Uh, it's a very brief Psalm, and this man says something like this. He says, Too long have I dwelt in the tents of Meshach and Kibar. When I was for peace, they were for war. It's, it's a graphic picture of him saying, I've hung around these people for so long that I'm getting affected by their speech. I'm finished with them. I'm making that difficult journey to Zion because I want to meet God. That's what repentance is. The journey to God begins with being fed up with where you are, acknowledging that you're being affected by the company that you're keeping and saying, I want to go all out for God. I want an encounter with God no matter how difficult and how long the journey is. So that's in the Old Testament. Then comes John the Baptist, breaking 400 years of prophetic silence. And what was his first message? Repent and bring forth fruit that is meat for repentance or appropriate to repent. Of course, he was the forerunner for Jesus. And Matthew's gospel tells us that when Jesus began his public ministry, his opening words were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you go to the book of Revelation, the last words of Jesus, apart from a couple of brief statements near the end, were the seven letters, the letters of the seven churches. Eight times we find the word repent. Five of the seven churches are called to repent. Repentance is a theme that runs right. It's nothing to do with breast beating. It has to do with changing our mind, thinking clearly. Of what then shall we repent? Is the next question. Several years ago when our children were still quite young, uh, we, uh, every year, uh, through the gracious gift of somebody in our congregation, we used to get to spend three or four days up at his cottage. 
and our host would always stay on afterwards to take the kids uh, water skiing and stuff like that. And uh, he was—he also had a video camera, one of those big, big ones, you know, those days, much before our small handy cams came out. And he was taking pictures of all the kids. And then, he, of course, every kid wanted to see themselves. And our host said, boy, we, we all like to look at ourselves, don't we? And some voice over my shoulder, I think it was another adult, that said, until God shows us what we are like. So that's what we repent of. It's whatever God shows us. I didn't have to tell Sean. It's not my business to tell him what to repent of. God told him. So you need to repent of the things that God shows you. So here are some things I would suggest. First of all, you might need to ask yourself as we went through that description, boy, where am I more casual than captain? I don't know, but you do. I only know where I was. So I do a lot of repenting this week. In fact, it broke my heart when I realized how much more, how much more I needed to let my future with Christ influence my present. I'm secure in my past with Christ. I believe the future. But how much more I need to set my mind on things that are above. That's what Paul is talking about in Corinthians when he says, set your mind on things that are above. Your life is hid with Christ in God. We have an amazing future waiting for us. Why not let that affect the way we live today? So I have to ask myself those questions. And we might need to repent of the ways in which we silence the voice of the Spirit. How many times, I don't know, only you know, how many times have you been in church? Or how many times have you read a book? Or how many times have you been in a conversation with another Christian? When the Holy Spirit convicts you of something, and guess what? Within day, within hours sometimes, you have neutralized it. Because you've explained it away as uh, enthusiasm, as preacher's manipulation, or that fanatic, or... Your version of eat, drink and be merry. Until the next time it happens. Then you do it again. To that extent that we've quenched the voice of the spirit. You know, Sean was saying it semi-humorously. But you know, hey, Lord, wait till the 18th hole. That's how we quench. Because I want to I live for the weekend a little bit more before I start living for the end, right? Well, he doesn't work on our terms. But it is possible. It is possible to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be told, don't quench it. And then thirdly, how about the company you seek and keep? Who do you hang around with? Do you choose to spend enough time with captive Christians who are going to help you say, too long have I dwelt in the tents of Meshach and Kibar. I want to make that difficult and dangerous journey to an encounter with the living God. And I want to stay that way. Are you going to hang around with those people or do they make you too uncomfortable so you choose a much more safe community that is far more interested in living for the weekend with you than the, than the end? I don't know, but I do know that whichever community you choose will be the ones that will influence you to a large extent. So if we're going to have to live this way, we need to know who the people that we're going to hang around with. So those are some areas in which we may need to repent. I know for me it was the first one. Let me just uh, draw this message to a close by speaking to leaders. We desperately need leaders with theological vision. Isaiah was not limited by the valley of vision. He was able to see beyond the valleys. He had the theological long-term vision and so he, he knew it was time to repent and weep, not to party. Even though the present looked pretty good, even though the weapons looked good, the walls looked good, and the water looked good, and the attacker had gone. Isaiah could see something different. He said, no, no, this is not the time. You're not responding as covenant people. 
As leaders, we need to lead the way in modeling this repentant lifestyle. Thank you as a worship leader that you're able to get up and do that. When Irvin Lutzer cataloged the Canadian, Western Canadian revivals in the mid-70s, he said the turning point that determined when that revival touched any particular local church, you know what the turning point was in most cases? When the pastor and the leaders of that church decided to publicly repent. And you know what the young people said? We always knew there were these kinds of people, but now that they know it too, we are ready to go with them. We need to be the kind of leaders who know when it is time to call our people to repent and not to rejoice. And also when it is time to rejoice too. (laughs) Nehemiah was a beautiful example of that. He celebrated and he wept. Both are important. We just need to know when is the time to do it. And now fathers, you know why I said this is a Father's Day message. We desperately need fathers, I said, with theological vision. Fathers who are able to model this kind of repentant lifestyle before their children and their grandchildren. Fathers who, as best they know, are living for the end and not just the weekend. And are taking their children there with. I think it was... uh, Wednesday or Thursday, I forget which day it was, and I was in the ravine. It must have been one of those good days. Uh, so I was just wrestling with this in my own heart, you know. Uh, and repenting before the Lord. And I was just trying to express to Him what I want, you know, what I want from Him. And, and there came into my mind the words of a song that was in the old Alliance hymn book. So 80% of you might not never have heard of it. It's a beautiful prayer. Let me recite the words for you. And I want to encourage you to make this your prayer. And then Sean's going to come and lead us in a couple of songs. Because you see, we don't want you to run away and throw cold water on whatever the Holy Spirit is doing today. Please do not, do not quench the Spirit. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword and I shall conquer a beast. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms and strong shall be my hand. My heart is weak and poor until it master find. It has no spring of action sure, it varies with the wind. It cannot freely move till thou hast wrought its chains. Enslave it with thy matchless love and deathless it shall reign. My power is faint and low till I have learned to serve. It wants the needed fire to glow. It wants the breeze to nerve. It cannot drive the world until itself be driven. Its flag can only fly unfurled when thou dost breathe from heaven. My will is not my own till thou hast made it thine. If it would reach a monarch's throne, it must its crown resign. It only stands unbent amid the clashing strife when on thy bosom it has lent and found in thee its life. I trust that that will be your prayer. Wind and fuel. And I just want to bless you with, with fuel that will be poured on the embers that may have grown a bit cold, may have begun to smolder. 
and with the wind of the Spirit to fan that into a fresh flame in your hearts once again. Go in Jesus' name.